This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of April 24th, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 426 of Defender Radio. Thousands of protesters in cities across North America marched on the weekend, calling attention to the need for signs in society and government. I absolutely loved seeing some of the signs that the scientists, educators, and science enthusiasts came up with for their local marches. My personal favorite read, first, they came for the scientists, and the National Park Service said, LOL, no, and went rogue, and we were all like, I was not expecting the park rangers to lead the resistance. None of the dystopian novels I've read prepared me for this. You can see some of the other signs from protests across the continent in various news reports that I've shared on my social media streams. Facebook.com slash Defender Radio, and Twitter, at Defender Radio. It feels fitting, too, that this week we're looking at a solution to a long-standing ethical, environmental, and economic problem that could be solved with science. A paper titled, Adaptive Use of Non-Lethal Strategies for Minimizing Wolf-Sheep Conflict in Idaho, was published in the February edition of the Journal of Mammalogy. It isn't the first paper or study that's looked at solutions to ending conflict on livestock grazing lands, but it certainly is expansive and exciting. Along with biologists, local ranchers, and a United States Department of Agriculture researcher, Suzanne Stone of Defenders of Wildlife collected data of depredation and management practices from two similar yet separate areas of land in the Gem State. What they found confirms, scientifically, what many have said for some time. Non-lethal deterrents work better than lethal control, cost less, and save thousands of lives. To talk more about this incredible study, the findings, the questions that still need to be asked, and what all of this means for a potential end to the war on wildlife, Defenders of Wildlife's Suzanne Stone joined Defender Radio. I thought uh, a great place for us to sort of start a conversation is looking at Idaho, uh, sort of as a whole, because... It's a state that, you know, for me living in Canada, I've never been to. Um, I've read about uh, primarily in history and nature documentaries. So what is the landscape of Idaho like? Oh, it's very diverse here. Um, The the middle part of the state, pretty much from north of Boise to the Canadian border, is uh, very mountainous. It goes from kind of an arid desert type of mountain area to almost um, rainforesty, wow. uh, you know, toward the, toward the top. And there's tons of lakes and lots of water up north and lots of cedar. And then down below, it's more pine, ponderosa. So we have some aspen forests, lots and lots of mountains, though. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. And clearly, uh, uh, ranching and agriculture is a, a significant part of, I would imagine, both your economy and your culture in Idaho. Yes, it, it historically was a significant part of our economy, and now it's really more um, a traditional part of our culture. And it's um, it's very embedded, I think, in, in just the politics in Idaho, has been for over a century. And that's absolutely something we see. Um, I think pretty much anywhere you have agriculture, you've got those sort of hardcore agricultural zones where it used to always be agricultural and all of the culture, the good and the bad that come along with that, remain very much ingrained in the politics yes. of the area. Yes, and we had a, a representative in Congress um, here from Idaho named uh, Frank Church, and he was one of the authors of the Wilderness Act uh, back in the 1970s, early 80s, and he uh, actually helped us preserve a, an enormous a part of our central Idaho wilderness area. And so outside of Alaska, we have the largest contiguous wilderness area in the lower 48 states. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed that when I looked up uh, Sawtooth National Forest, which is the site, I believe, uh, of most of your research that you were going to be talking about. I was amazed at how much of your state is covered by forest. It is. 66% of our state is public land. And that's it's, uh, I think, the most of any state out here in the region. And that leads into an interesting conversation. Again, something that I think if you live in an agricultural zone, you're going to know about. But for those of us who don't, public land is used 
by agriculture, particularly with, with sheep and cattle, uh, which is what we're going to be talking about. Can you explain how exactly that works? Uh, like a rancher is able to sort of send their their uh, their flock or their their herd out onto public land to graze. Yes, and the public lands here are, are often managed either by the United States Department of Agriculture Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management, and both are established and and very uh, focused on grazing on those on those public lands. And so they establish then allotments that the ranchers can um, bid on and lease. And often those leases are passed down from generation to generation. So a certain family might end up having a lease for many years. And after you know a time, they start to feel a real ownership of that of that land, and uh, it's um, it's sometimes uh, challenging to um, have people understand that these are public lands and that they belong to everybody. But um, we do have lots and lots of cattle and sheep out on the public lands in central Idaho, where we reintroduced wolves. Thankfully, um, because of our help from the Canadian government. Uh, we were able to reintroduce them in 1995 and 1996, and we brought in 66 wolves, and about half went to Yellowstone National Park, and the other half went to Yellowstone or to Central Idaho. And uh, between those two populations, the Idaho population really expanded faster than probably anyone expected. And just a few years afterwards, we had wolves um, throughout our our wilderness area. Basically, they were coming back to a vacuum where the habitat was excellent for them and uh, lots of elk and deer, but also encountering livestock again for the first time since wolves were eradicated in the 1930s here. Yep. And uh, But before we get into the livestock, I have one more question about the geography and the landscape. We, we frequently hear about the success of the wolves in Yellowstone, um, not just as a population of wolves, but... Uh, for the entire ecosystem. I mean, there's beautiful videos and speeches. Uh, there's books now about it. Was it a similar um, impact on the ecosystem in Idaho? Was it sort of a, a an across-the-border improvement? <laughs> Idaho didn't get as much attention as Yellowstone. Uh, Yellowstone is one of our premier national parks in the United States, and it really captured people's imagination. And so the focus was on Yellowstone, and, and much of the research has been on Yellowstone. So central Idaho, even though we have this amazing wilderness area there where livestock aren't grazed, um, we do have national forests surrounding all of that, and they do have you know livestock there. So we know that, uh, that the research coming out of Yellowstone is most likely applicable to what's going on in Idaho from the benefit of having wolves back on the landscape. Um, wolves are certainly doing the same kind of removal of diseased elk and deer, of helping those animals, um, the big herds, split up or to um, extend them further on the landscape so that they're not just concentrating like cattle herds uh, in the middle of these big riparian areas. And because of that, I know in Yellowstone, we've seen the return of aspen and willow and a lot of other species that depend on those plants uh, including beaver, uh, which we had lost, and songbirds that have come back in multitudes. So the biodiversity from bringing back wolves has been outstandingly um, researched in Yellowstone, um, but less so in Idaho, though we know we're having some of the same benefits here. And that gets us into um, nicely into the, the background of your study, um, which I've, I've got pulled up here. Oh, I pushed the wrong button. I do have it pulled up here, though. I switched, <laughs> I switched to my map of Idaho for a second there. Um, so your study, Adaptive Use of Non-Lethal Strategies for Minimizing Wolf-Sheep Conflict in Idaho, which was in the Journal of Mammalogy um, in February. And uh, your, your backgrounder sort of immediately goes into the statistics of the conflict. And this is something I think... Anyone who either uh, uh, is involved in agriculture or, or involved in animal advocacy or, or simply just loves animals is aware that uh, very frequently, at the very least, there is a perception of large carnivores and cattle um, or sheep livestock, I'll say, coming into conflict and that being the source of a lot of problems and the reason for a lot of very aggressive uh, co control efforts. Um, so can you walk us through from, as as you said, and as the backgrounder notes, from 95, 96, 
when the wolf started coming back to where we're at today in terms of conflict uh, on both sides of that line? So in 1995, when we released the first wolves, uh, it wasn't a month after that when we had our first cattle uh, depredation and potentially a depredation, I'll say, because they never determined whether the wolf that came in was scavenging from a dead calf that had been stillborn or if it was a calf that had been born and the wolf had killed it. And there was an enormous conflict over it. It involved federal agents. Um, it was uh, people were threatening each other. Um, it was extremely volatile. The wolf reintroduction itself was extremely volatile. And we, um, I was up in Canada for part of it, but I also helped bring the wolves back and to take them into the backcountry and release them here. And we had, you know, the death threats and, and um, warnings of ambush. And we had to have federal officers protecting us going into the backcountry and certainly protecting the wolves at that time. Because there's still uh, people who had lived for generations without wolves on the landscape. And they believe more Little Red Riding Hood stories and Peter and the Wolf than they did the science on on wolves and their value as, as a species. So it was a, a social challenge, probably more than anything. Um, biologically, wolves did great. And once we released them, they um, moved around the state, found each other, uh, paired up. And by that spring, we had pups on the ground for the first time in, gosh, almost 80 years. That's got to be pretty exciting to be a part of. It was it was amazing. And there were so many people that did absolutely heroic things that made it happen, um, that their stories haven't been told yet. And I'm hoping someday to get a book out there that really highlights their stories and what those people did and, and what the animals did as well. There's some great stories that haven't been shared yet. Well, I would absolutely love to read that book. So keep me in mind when you write it okay. um, and we'll get you back on the show. But, okay. <laughs> uh, and of, of course we did talk, you have to talk about the depredation. It does happen. Um, and there, and I'm sure we'll talk a little more about sort of the determining what exactly happened as you, you implied with that first wolf. And that's something that, uh, um, uh, was it Carter Niermeyer wrote a book I'm sure you're familiar with, um, where he was highly critical of how, uh, wildlife agents, ranchers, and others are identifying whether or not uh, an animal, a livestock animal, was killed by a wolf or an eagle or of natural causes and then uh, um, found as carrion. And so that's, so that's kind of like a whole issue uh, uh, that we'll need to get into. But there, there has been, and it looks, when you look just at the numbers, it seems like a lot. Um, you know, you note 6,000 sheep and cattle um, have been killed. Um in depredation situations that involve wolves. Since 1995, and that might actually go back to 1987 when wolves were reintroducing themselves across the border into northwestern Montana. So even though that seems like a lot, if you compare it to what else is going on with sheep and, and cattle, just for instance in Idaho, on an average year, we lose somewhere between five and 10,000 sheep just to coyotes. Um, we lose thousands of cattle to um, disease, bad weather, um, theft. Um, so really the, the wolf part of this is a, sorry, a drop in the bucket compared to, um, compared to what else is going on for those industries. Well, and it's interesting too, um, because a lot of this information I'm going to, to guess, and you may, tell me I'm very wrong, is self-reported. Um, someone saying coyotes, wolves, bears, whatever, got my sheep. Um, and, of course, one of the issues that we will get into as we look at um, your uh, study area and your methods uh, is, you know, what else was contributing to these incidents? Um, you know, do we know that coyotes killed that sheep or was it as you said maybe a stillborn or diseased or did it fall over you know of a heart attack after watching a scary movie <laughs> and a wolf yeah. came along and went hey free lamb chops well everything likes to eat lamb and then boy you know just across the board plus they're not the most hardy creatures in the world we've you know, a lot of them die because of um birthing issues um probably that's even for cattle that's like the number one cause of of livestock mortality outside of, you know, being butchered for, for people. But 
Um, it's it's pretty imp- amazing to me how folks, um, you know, what kind of uh, animal husbandry methods they have to use in order to keep these animals alive on such remote public lands. Yeah, and that's, you know, uh, your numbers again note that approximately 200 to 220,000 sheep graze annually in Idaho, which is a lot of sheep, with an estimated average annual loss of 20 to 30,000 from all mortality other than intentional slaughter. So that's 10 to a little more than 10% of the sheep population uh, dying. Right. Um, and you note, again, this is uh, USDA numbers, uh, which I, as much as I want to trust, I, <laughs> um, and I'm sure you, you may have a different opinion on that than I do, but, you know, they say uh, 30 to 40% of all mortality is related as uh, uh, depredation as reported by sheep producers. So we're looking at 60%, so 10 to 15,000 sheep dying just for reasons other than depredation or intentional killing in Idaho every year. That seems pretty significant in itself. It is. And, you know, any way that you can help um, reduce those numbers, then, you know, less than becomes blamed on the predators or um, there's less um, reason then to try to remove the predators from the landscape. But for for decades now, that's been the go-to method is that if sheep or cattle producers suspect that they have a problem with predators, they usually pick up the phone and they'll call and ask that those predators be killed. And we have a a federal program in the United States, used to be called Animal Damage Control, and now it's called um, Wildlife Services. And they can request that people will come out and and kill the the, uh, predators that are supposedly bothering the livestock. And it's not always investigated to the point where there's conclusive proof that coyotes or mountain lions or bears or wolves are involved. And and that's very concerning because if they're going out and just randomly killing predators, that really affects the ecosystem. It can cause disruption within the wolf pack itself or other predators to the point where you have um, uh, younger animals on the landscape that may not know how to hunt on their own as well. And maybe then more focused on killing livestock because they don't have that kind of background knowledge of how to survive on their own without the older, um, in the case of wolves, without their own older family members being present and teaching them. So that turned into this constant cycle then of uh, the livestock perhaps being preyed on by predators, um, the ranchers calling, having the predators removed and then um, maybe everything would be okay for them for six months or a year but as soon as that gap was there in nature it always wants to be filled and if there were coyotes and bears and mountain lions or wolves there before they will be back and then if the root cause of the livestock damage isn't addressed then this whole cycle just repeats itself again, and then it goes back to killing. Um, more livestock get killed, more predators get killed, and and it just never stops. And so our goal was to say this system is clearly broken. It clearly isn't working. It certainly isn't working for, for the, the wildlife on the landscape. What could we do differently? And um, we knew that there were many non-lethal tools like the use of livestock guarding dogs or lighting, sometimes fencing, that worked really well on small operations like backyard farms, um, small herding operations, um, you know, places where people ca- uh, pastured their cattle. But we've been told uh, by the scientists and certainly by the Fish and Wildlife Service that was head of the wolf program that you cannot use these tools effectively across a big landscape. And yet that's where most livestock and most wolves were getting killed. And so our goal then was to take one of the worst case areas and test that theory. Is this impossible to use on this big landscape? And that's what we did. And there are several uh, methods too. And I think that's uh, maybe one of the things that's important. I know when when I speak about conflict resolution and and, uh, most of my 
time when I speak about this uh, professionally is about coyotes. That's that's sort of my wheelhouse. Um, but people say, I tried this and it didn't work, or I tried that and it didn't work. But very rarely, uh, like, do you see someone say, I did this string of things together and it didn't work. And I find that's sort of what you've, you've listed here is you've got various things. You've got a, from simple increased human presence, uh, increased number of livestock guardian dogs, and that's something... Um, a friend of mine who uh, runs a ranch in northern Alberta, she says, it's like, maybe you don't have enough dogs. Like, just, 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 <laughs> that's it, you know? Um, you have spotlight, radioactivated guard box, uh, fladry and turbo fladry, uh, blanks, handguns, klaxon, radio telemetry, uh, telemetry, and flashing lights. So, multiple methods being employed. Um, yep. And none of these, as far as I know, are expensive or difficult to implement necessarily with with maybe the exception of dogs who require a bit of training and so on sure and you have to make sure that those dogs are well trained but that's the truth with all of these methods with any of these methods it, they have to be uh, used properly and that includes livestock guarding dogs so there's certain times of the year particularly in the spring and near wolf dens that you don't want to have a lot of livestock guarding dogs um, near those den sites because wolves think that the livestock guarding dogs are really just funny looking strange wolves and strange wolves are the biggest threat to their pups. So if these strange wolves come in close enough to their den site, wolves will attack them. But any other time of the year when they're not so defensive about pups, livestock guarding dogs are fantastic to use. And especially if you're doing it in multiple numbers, that's just something that the ranchers didn't know. They just assumed, well, okay, we'll use livestock guarding dogs. But when they drove those dogs right on top of a den site, which is what really started this whole Wood River Wolf project, it ended in tragedy. You know, the, the uh, wolves killed um, a guard dog, and then they killed nine sheep that were there. And just um, really aggressively because their pups were right there. And, and that was something that the ranchers didn't know. And it was something that the wildlife managers also didn't expect to have a thousand sheep and guard dogs brought into a little valley right where the wolves were denning. Well, and that happened um, relatively recently in in a case in the Northwest. And I it involved a, I think, a university professor speaking out, which is why it kind of made the news. Um, but more or less, it was a case where they said, oh, well, we've got to go in and kill these wolves. They, you know, they, they, um, depredated upon our uh, our livestock and the professor um, or the researcher who was involved in the case said you had them within 900 meters of a known wolf den um, which is for for american listeners half a mile roughly it's going to end poorly the first depredation we had in the state of oregon was another really great example and that it happened near baker city and wolves killed several lambs and when we went onto the landscape and this is through the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, they discovered right next door that there were two hundred or more carcasses of dead livestock there. Now now wolves are scavengers as well as predators and they have this incredible um, part of their brain that is is tr totally triggered on on scent. Um, in fact if you compare their brain to ours and how we interpret scent, our scent interpretation center is about the size of a pea and for them it's about the size of our fist wow. so they think that they actually even dream in scent what a world huh and so yeah. these animals had come from over 10 miles away smelling this dead livestock and then they get there and they make the same kind of choice that we do they look and go okay maggoty smelly old dead livestock or spring lamb um and they were within a i don't know 300 yards of each other so you know it we just how we um, manage our livestock can have a lot of impact on whether we have problems with predators or not. And that's one of the key things that we found with this project is that um, you can't just rely on one or two different types of deterrents. Uh, wolves are smart. Coyotes are smart. Bears are smart. All these wildlife predators, they have to be smart to, to survive. And if they are exposed to the same tool um, over and over and over again, eventually they're going to lose their fear of it. And that might be with the exception of things like livestock guarding dogs or um, with uh, human presence, uh, potentially even electric fencing. But, um, but the other tools that they're using, they're great to have because they elevate the sense of risk in the wolves. And wolves are very risk-aversive. 
but um, you, you want to keep changing these things up so that you don't end up habituating the wolves or the other predators to any one particular type of deterrent. Well, and that actually makes me think of a case uh, in the suburbs where I used to live. Um, and I was working for the newspaper and covering a lot of coyote issues. And a, a gentleman said there is these coyotes uh, and it was uh, uh, sort of a, a arterial road with a service road. Uh, next to the highway um, where this this den site was in and around. And this guy said, I pulled my car up and they were watching me and I honked my horn and they didn't run away. They weren't scared. And I said, they hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like that that's an absolutely, that's, you know, it's like my wife yelling at me to do the dishes. It <laughs> yeah. no longer has an impact on me. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's definitely uh, an interesting point. That's, I, I wonder... Uh, well, how do you work that into this kind of a study, uh, that that concept of sort of uh, variation on your um, your your methods of uh, whether it be, you know, hazing or awareness or uh, towards the wolves? How do you measure that or include that in the project? Well, that was something that we really had to learn along the way because nobody else had done something like this before. And so we were learning as we were going and we were learning from the herders who would tell us, you know, this is what the wolves are doing. We were, we were tracking the wolves, trying to find out where they were denning, where they would take their pups for rendezvous. And the more that we knew about the wolves, the easier it was for us to tailor what type of non-lethal deterrence would best protect the livestock. And so that, that all became part of this system of us learning more, adding new tools, tailoring the tools to meet the situation, and then continuing to build on that knowledge. Uh, we had one incident, though, in 2000, I want to say it's 2011, and one of the sheep producers brought in a band and then split the band during one night, um, right before evening. We knew about the one band that was there, and we were protecting it. We had our field people out with it. And there was livestock guarding dogs there, and um, we had the high beam flashlights and the air horns. And so when wolves came in that night, the dogs started barking. We knew immediately that there was a problem, got up, used those tools, the wolves ran away. And unfortunately, they ran away to where there was another band that we didn't know about. And it was only about 100 or so um, uh, sheep that they had moved down the road about half a mile. And there weren't any deterrents with that particular band. And so the next morning, there were a dozen dead sheep. And, uh, and you know, so it was just this unplanned train wreck. The great thing about that, that incident, though, is that the rancher said, you know what, that was, that was my responsibility. Um, I didn't let people know about these other sheep. We didn't have adequate um, protection in place. I'm not going to ask the wolves to be killed. And, and that made a, that overture from him when he could have asked um, really built the trust and, and um, just kind of reinforced the, the collaboration uh, going forward in this project. Well, and out of curiosity, uh, just thinking about the losses, what would uh, an individual sheep who is, you know, perhaps ready to be sent to slaughter, what is the dollar value to a rancher of that one sheep? So typically the sheep, and especially lambs, they're going to range somewhere around $120 to up toward maybe $180, depending on the market. Rams are more, but we typically don't have a lot of rams on the, on the um, landscape, at least most of the grazing season. So, you know, they're, they're not as expensive as cattle, but it's, it's also very um, typical that if one sheep gets killed, there might be multiple sheep being killed like it was this particular incident. But that was, that was the worst case that we had during this entire seven-year study, though. And we had somewhere between 10,000 to 22,000 sheep on our grazing allotments um, in the project area every year. And over the course of the seven years, and in fact, up through today, which is year 10 for us, uh, we've only lost 30 sheep overall to wolves. That's remarkable. It really is. Um, And when you look, again, there's a chart, uh, protected area versus the non-protected area. And I presume the non-protected area was sort of just business as usual, including hunting, trapping. Yes. Um, it's, It's nearly four times um, as many 
sheep killed in the area where they were hunting wolves and, and trapping wolves, but not actually doing any of these coexistence methods or not using the the range of the ones you're using in your protected area. Um, like that, it, if you just apply that dollar figure alone, uh, you know, $100 per head, and then <laughs> you're looking at 30 so a loss of, and again, it's, it's, it's somewhat callous to say this, but I think it's necessary. You're looking at a loss of, a few hundred dollars yes. to a few thousand dollars. When you look at the non-protected area, it is significantly more. All of a sudden, you're starting to talk tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it includes the lethal control of wolves. So they were killing wolves next door, and they took out entire packs in this adjacent area where we didn't have a single wolf killed for depredation conflicts in our area over that entire, um, well, over the last decade. And so um, the cost of that is... It's pretty high, and the public doesn't know here. Most of them don't, but they pay for that. And like in Washington, where the area that you were talking about earlier, it can cost sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars just to take out, you know, to kill an entire wolf mm-hmm. pack. Well, and that's something we're seeing with uh, our mountain caribou issues in Western Canada. Uh, is the cost of killing the wolves, which is ineffective and inhumane. Uh, in an attempt to save these caribou, and it's it's you're, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, not including all of that bureaucracy work that's going on behind the scenes too. Yeah, yeah, it's, it just doesn't make sense for us to be doing it this way. And you know what we determined um, in the latter years of the project was that it was costing us about a dollar a sheep um, to run the project during the course of the summer grazing season. So we really, you know, weren't spending more than the 22 to $25,000 a year. And, and that went for the entire grazing season. That's incredible. So it's, it's just, it's just a better way of going about business. And it's certainly a more ecologically sound and sustainable way to manage both livestock and wildlife. And I, I, I'm going to ask, and I think you sort of, you half answered this already, but it's one that comes up, um, sort of two parts of this one um rancher goes out kills the wolves the rest of that season there's no depredation um that's i think it's it's a reasonable like if i get rid of all of the predators in a one mile you know radius around my one sheep the chances of that one sheep being attacked by a predator are going to plummet so they see a short-term success potentially but why would that rebound so heavily um to go the other direction so um, if it rebounds, it's because you've got new wolves, for instance, moving into that area that's vacant to habitat for them. And um, so if I understand your question, then they would um, go to the same area. It's not the same wolves, but the same vulnerabilities are there within the livestock. So there's still a lack of protection. It's inconsistent. The wolves don't see a sense of risk or maybe they're drawn into the area where the livestock are because there's dead carcasses of livestock there and they come in based on their their ability to scavenge and their need to survive. And and then they make the same choice of, you know, do we want to eat fresh lamb for dinner or something that's been laying around for in the sun for, you know, weeks or months. And that... Um, it, it's almost like it, it it's an attractant for them at that point that causes that depredation then conflict to occur. And we're trying to make sure that, you know, that the ranchers know that this, this is how you avoid having those kinds of fallouts uh, of attracting predators to your, to your allotments, to your ranch, to your farm. And, you know, we can help you use these tools by teaching you where to get them, how to use them, um, when to change them. There's there's lots of advice out there that can come that, you know, can assist the ranchers then in learning how to adapt their operations so that they're better protected against wild predators. Well, and there was an, uh, an interesting study in 2014, I believe it was. Um, I've got the, the blog I wrote about it. It was published on uh, PLOS One by, um, what are the names? Uh, one of the co-authors was Rob Weigless. Um and they uh, examined 25 years of data from Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And amongst other things, one of the things they found that for every one wolf killed, the odds of depredation the following year increased by 4% for sheep and as much as 6% for cattle. And again, to me, that, you know, there is a, a number of criticisms about this study in particular uh, amongst 
uh, the agricultural sector and even, I think, within some of the, the um, wildlife advocacy sector in that there was no control. Uh, there was a lot of variables that probably couldn't be factored in just due to the sheer size of the data sets. Um, but again, it's seeing that there's actually an increase of depredation when you're taking lethal action against uh, the wolf populations. And that's similar, I think, to something we see perhaps with coyotes, where their populations increase when persecuted. Yeah. And as you said, if you're already in an area where you're sort of inviting them in in many ways, um, you know, you just sort of start, you keep stacking these two things that conflict with each other against one another. And sooner or later, that's just going to keep building and building and building. Um, is that similar to what you were seeing? Definitely, and especially with with animals like wolves, where they live in a big family unit. The pack is basically the mom and dad, the uh, brothers and sisters that are older, and then you know the the kids from that year. <laughs> and if if um, the older adults are the ones that are are killed, uh, and if the pack splits up, then the ones that are younger, especially the ones that are more of the teenage uh, relative to humans. Yeah. Um, they, they don't have very much experience and it, it, wolves are about 10 months old before they learn how to really truly feed themselves uh, by hunting success, successfully on their own. And if you're dumping a bunch of six month old pups basically out there, they're going to turn to the something to survive. And if they can't catch wild elk and deer, they're going to, they'll go to, to sheep and, and cattle because they're easier to kill. You know, that, um, I think probably explains a good part of what Dr. Weiglist found in his study. And uh, I hope that, uh, that they continue to examine this more closely and maybe taking some of those data sets and um, uh, giving a lot more, um, I don't know, just thorough examination of them. Uh, unfortunately, it's really hard to get this information. Mm -hmm. um, Wildlife Services is the agency that, tend, that uh, usually is... Um, responsible for killing the wolves or the bears or the coyotes and um, their reports are often a maybe a page long and there's not much detail about you know what they found um, and so it's it's really hard uh, sometimes it doesn't even include the locations of where wow. these things occurred so it's it's hard to piece that kind of thing together um, but you know, as we learn at least that there's opportunity to use these non-lethal methods across the landscape, our encouragement to them, especially to wildlife services, um, being a federal agency that is supposed to be supporting uh, wildlife conservation, that this actually does both. It protects the livestock and it protects the wildlife. And at the end of the day, that's really what we all want. Yep. And that's... As much as there are people who you'll see, uh, if you are as fortunate as I am, and that reading internet comments is part of your job, um, who, who think, oh, we don't need wolves. Just bottom line, you know, my whole life I never saw a wolf. And these, these are ideally the, or exactly the people who live in, uh, you know, that northwest section of the United States um, and throughout much of Canada is, it's very true. They never saw wolves growing up because they had killed every, all, all of them beforehand. And now we're reintroducing wolves. We understand the ecological importance. So to them, wolves never killed my animals. Wolves came back. Now wolves kill my animals. Like just that very simple logic. And it's not wrong. Um, which kind of makes it, I think, maybe more difficult to to communicate about, is that that's, you know, while it is, it is full of fallacies, is still correct. That when there were no wolves, wolves weren't killing things. And now that wolves yeah. are back, they are killing things. Um, yeah. And I'm going to get to that in one moment. Something I want to get into first is um, the... Uh, uh, I, and I've heard different terms, but dead stock or, or bait piles. Um, this is something that I think a lot of people don't know goes on, on ranches or around ranches, or around any kind of farmland. It's what happens when an animal dies that hasn't been taken for slaughter. Um, you would assume that they're, they're, you know, the corpse is taken care of in some way. But that's not always the case. And that itself, as you've, you've mentioned now a few times, can lead to very significant problems. So... Could you explain what these piles are? Why why some ranchers have just dead animals on their property? Certainly, and, and that's been a practice that I think has been going on for quite some time. So it may be that 
that it's because my dad did it that way and my grandfather and my great grandfather that, you know, we've heard, I've heard that before. Um, but it's, it's a practice that we really hope doesn't continue. And, um, we've certainly seen a benefit from cleaning those carcass pits up. Um, one example is in Wallawa Valley over in Northwestern Oregon. Um, we had a GPS satellite collared wolf. So we were getting data points on this wolf, I think every 10 hours. And there were um, places on the map where that wolf would come back and frequent all the time and would go to exactly the same places. And the biologist that was tracking that wolf finally went to the ranchers with the map and said, what gives? What's going? Why, are the, why is this wolf going to exactly these places over and over and over again and been doing it for a year? And the ranchers said, well, that's where our dead pits are. Um, so that was a great lesson for the biologist. It was a greater lesson for the ranchers who looked at the raw data and went, wow, you know, this really is true. They are attracted to these spots. And so they cleaned up all of the carcass pits. And I think that wolf went back. Again, uh, six months later and maybe another year or so later. I mean, wolves are, once they've gotten a free meal, <laughs> they're pretty much, you know, yeah. they're like hopeful that, that free meal is going to be there again the next time they need it. So they will go back and investigate. And if it's gone, then, I mean, they're still hopeful. They might come back again and look around and think, you know, maybe somehow it'll it'll reappear again. But after a while, they'll give up. And so the best thing is just to make sure that those dead pets aren't there to begin with because then you don't have an attraction out there that's going to draw those predators into your livestock operation. Well, and, and removal of the dead stock, I, while it's maybe not easy, especially if you're dealing with cattle uh, rather than sheep or something even smaller, uh, there typically are programs in most counties, municipalities that will assist ranchers with this. Is that correct? Yes, there are in many places. I can't, can't say that they are everywhere, but they are in many places. And certainly there's there's agencies that are um, state and federal that are willing to help ranchers locate those services. Um, there's been times where we've certainly paid for having uh, carcasses removed or there's even ways that you can do it you know, in place. So there, if you have like a, a dead sheep in the back country, you can't haul it out then you can take a, a black tarp and kind of use the sunlight to help kind of, you know, reduce that down as an attractant as quickly as you can. And, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that they have to clean up every single carcass because if there's no livestock there, then it's, and then they're not going to be there again, then, you know, that's something to weigh. But having a big setup where you have a lot of dead animals and they're right next to your livestock is really just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and that's that's uh, when I first heard about that, I I was shocked. Uh, I I really really was, and I I find myself saying that frequently these days. Uh, how you know when I first started getting involved in wildlife stuff uh, several years ago as a journalist, uh, how often I was surprised, and even today, uh, you know, several years later after you know thousands of blogs and interviews, uh, I I am still surprised by some of this uh, because it, it just it seems so obvious once you you hear sort of the solution and i think sort of your your story of how that rancher seeing that raw data of one wolf constantly coming back uh can really have an impact on it um but i want to get to uh, we've got a couple of questions from the audience uh that we got uh prior to recording um i think a uh I, I know which one i want to end with uh <laughs> a, a good that's always the way it goes um a good question about uh, flattery use with wolves versus the tool's effectiveness with coyotes. Um, again, the flattery is the the orange flags, um, typically orange flags that are hung. And uh, there's one photo, I think it's it's either in your story or in an article about the, story, the study that shows sort of a uh, makeshift almost pen in a grazing area made up with these. So flattery is one of those ones you hear about. I, I don't necessarily understand how it works or why it works, though I know... With coyotes, typically, they get past it after not too long. Um, so is it more effective with wolves, or is it maybe something that only works if you're using it with other things? It's more effective with wolves than it is with coyotes. Um, coyotes, 
they're pretty clever. Some people think they're smarter than wolves. I think that there's probably something to that. But um, they certainly are more adapted to being around people. And, and so they figure us out pretty quickly. Now, the flattery originally came from Poland and that part of Europe where generations ago, villagers uh, who were trying to reduce the wolf numbers around their village would um, take strips of clothing and hang them either on a pole or on a, a rope, a long, long rope, and string them through the woods. And there would be a wide end of a V kind of shape that they were making and then a narrow funnel at the end and the hunters with their rifles would wait in the narrow funnel end and the villagers would come through the woods with their pots and pans and they would chase the wolves into this um, trap basically now to you and I looking at this stuff it looks harmless it is harmless mm-hmm. but wolves for whatever reason do not like it and we've had a wolf in in eastern Washington that um, had discovered a cow in winter that was a carcass that was just left out in the woods. He was feeding off of this cow probably quite happily because it was a food resource for him in a hard time of the year. And and so the biologist put up a, a flattery uh, perimeter around it. Now, this looks like used car lot flagging stuff. I mean, it's it almost yeah. looks silly, right? But we put it up, uh, our, our flattery went up around the, the cow and they set up cameras, and this wolf came back, I think, 17 times over three days. And he would jump over the barbed wire like it wasn't even there, but would not go through the flattery. And, that's, that's incredible. And, yeah, and it, it was great stuff. We've had similar instances where we were trying, uh, Wildlife Services was trying to haze the wolves through a flattery perimeter, so a, a, a fence line that was set up with it. And it was only thing, the only thing out there. They could have easily jumped over it. It's only at about 24 inches high or so. And they chose instead to go under the helicopter than to go through the <laughs> tree line. So there's something that works with it. And it's a tool we used frequently at the beginning of the Wood River Wolf Project. We don't anymore because the other tools are working so well that we don't have to have something that's kind of a, um, uh, to us, it's our ace up the sleeve. If, if other things fail, this thing is going to work. Uh, at least for the, the short duration that we're going to need it. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the ranchers that are getting the flattery now are putting it up or the, uh, working with the agencies to put it up and either not installing it properly or they're leaving it up for like three, four months, sometimes a year. And once wolves become habituated to this stuff where they lose their fear of it, they'll never be afraid of it again on anybody else's property. And we lose that tool as a method to help stop conflicts from occurring. So that's why we're trying to encourage the ranchers to please, you know, if you use something that works, don't just rely on that. Let's change it up as we can and try to make it something that uh, will continue to be a good tool that you can use years down the line too. Uh, And that, that leads nicely into our next one. Uh, This, this we've got two questions and they're more or less the same. Um, So I'll try and just sort of paraphrase it, paraphrase it. One is, um, can like what you've learned from what you've shown to work with wolves and coexistence be applied to other types of predators? And the secondary part of that is, can it then be scaled down from, you know, the, the public grazing lands of, of Idaho to my backyard? Uh, like, can I use this to keep predators from coming too close or getting comfortable around neighborhood pets and kids? Yes and yes. Um, so definitely these tools are um, applicable for other wildlife we noticed, um, particularly with like livestock guarding dogs, if the guardian dogs are out there and you have multiple guardian dogs, they end up paying for themselves because they we have such a remarkable um, reduction in the amount of um, sheep that get killed um, by other predators. So those are great. We also picked up a tool called Foxlights out of Australia. I was there a few years ago and working with folks in the dingo operation. Are, are those the flashing ones? They are. They're wonderful. And we've always had flashing light ideas out there, and we've tried different ones. But they always had a regular pattern to them that quickly any wildlife would habituate to. These are, are just very unique in that they have this kind of strobe system in there that is uh, random, and it if you look at it uh, in the woods at night, it looks like someone bouncing around, walking around with a uh, flashlight. And so it really 
you know, project some kind of movement of somebody out there. And, I, and it's been a, just a brilliant tool uh, that we've used quite a bit now. And in fact, it's being used all over the world um, for all types of, of wildlife, um, from African lions to uh, snow leopards in Mongolia and, and elsewhere. So, you know, it's, it's just an incredible um, new tool. And we're hoping that those kind of new technologies are going to start coming out as people learn more about what we're trying to do and helping um, others, uh, you know, use these kind of tools. Now, as far as, um, you know, kids and, and uh, uh, neighborhood dogs, that sort of thing, cats, it's, um, it's harder to um, address, especially things like, you know, cats being let out, especially if you're in an area that's next to a wild area, because you have so many different types of predators, things like hawks and um, bobcats and all that. And, you know, they may or may not be affected by this stuff. Um, you know, kids, wild predators tend to avoid humans, period. So, yes, it's great to have an idea of what things could deter uh, and keep the predators away from places where there are uh, villages or towns but it's, it's really unusual for those predators to come close to those places um, anyway. And certainly having dogs close by or, um, you know, that's something like that where you're, again, not attracting those predators into a community area uh, is probably your best bet to begin with. Yeah, that's, that's definitely what I've experienced and read about um, is anytime there's a conflict with children, um, you, you're going to find feeding or attractants right there. Um, seriously, every time uh, I've read about it or been involved in it. Um, and that's that's always going to be the number one lesson is get rid of the attractants. Um, and then, of course, just some basic education for kids. Uh, one of the other questions we had was in relation to wolf howling. And this is something there's there's a professor studying um, the, the vocal patterns or the language of wildlife. And I cannot remember her name right now. And I feel like a horrible person for that. Because uh, I've been desperate to get her on the show, but she's been very busy. And the question is regarding whether or not you could use speakers of wolves howling. Um, and I don't know if this has been done successfully. I know it's been done using wild dogs and raccoons. I don't know if it's been done with wolves, though, and livestock. So using large speakers or speakers of any kind to play wolf noises and have, uh, have that keep other wolves or other predators away. Yes, um, wolves, actually wild wolves, they um, they will respond to like humans howling. I've gone out and howled for wolves, have them come in and we've howled together and that's great. And, you know, they're, it's amazing actually to be doing that in the backcountry and, and um, in communication with these animals. I've not seen a uh, recorded howling work to attract them in. It's like they kind of know the difference. Uh, so... You know, I, I'm still not certain what we're going to see come out of um, it, that study in terms of effectiveness for um, for wolves. But um, certainly, learning more about how wolves communicate—I mean, that that part I think is extremely interesting. And you know, perhaps there's going to be some way of uh, you know applying that then to what we're trying to do with the non-lethal. Yeah, it's, uh, the technology is evolving so quickly now, too, and we're making it more accessible to so many people. And that's actually a project that um, I'm trying to get off the ground for the fur bears, just a small scale, but fundraising to then give out grants for research on coexistence methods. Um, you know, we're just trying to get $5,000 together to do it and hand out three or four. Um, but you look now, especially in Canada and the U.S., uh, even at the high school level, when you kind of create a competition on some of these things. I just read about a girl who has increased the power of algae energy production. Um, high school kid, $100,000. Uh, and this is technology now that's going to be used by industry. Uh, and they're going to study what she's done. So it, it's really exciting to know that we've got this, this entire generation of, of brilliant minds coming up that could be the ones who figure out, you know, how do we take all of the stuff we've now learned and apply it a little more? Uh, Absolutely. It's so, it is, it's really exciting. And we've got a, a workshop next month with uh, folks coming in from Africa that are going to be teaching us about a method that they call a lion shield. And we're 
thrilled to be able to help um, help them come here and look at our landscape and see if there's a way of it being adapted so it will work on our landscape and certainly be able to show them the types of tools that we're using because you know these problems are international um, and there's solutions are too. So, you know, the more that we communicate, the better that we're able to network with those groups and those individuals who are coming up with these ideas, um, the better we all are. Absolutely. And I, I hope we hear about uh, what happens with that project. Um, and on to the final question. And this is one that came up three times and each time far more colorfully than I am willing to say on this podcast. <laughs> okay. um, but more or less, there is typically... And again, this is coming from the advocacy side. Um, typically, a lot of visceral pushback from industry, uh, be it you know agriculture, ranchers, um, uh, wildlife control, to uh, anyone who is not in their industry or in their their business, suggesting that research is showing new information. So you know, in your case, it's you're you're a wildlife organization. You have done research has been peer-reviewed, has been published. Um, and I would expect you are going to get pushback from ranchers when you say, look, this works, it'll save you money. Um, you know, and it's the, your city folk or you don't know, or it's different here. How do you currently, and how do you propose other people work with ranchers to, to find new solutions and to convince them to try some of the things you're learning again, through repeatable research, um, you, 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 the utilization of the scientific method. It's not just uh, an ethics thing. How, how do you communicate with them and, and grow that partnership? That's exactly why we structured the study the way that we did. My um, lead co-author is Dr. Stuart Brack from USDA Wildlife Services National Wildlife Research Center in Fort Collins, Colorado. And he is the research arm of the USDA uh, Wildlife Services Program. So he and his uh, colleagues are the ones that are doing this stuff in the field, and, and they've been long trusted by the ranching community. We also have a rancher as one of the, um, the co-authors on the paper. We have a veterinarian. Um, other, others are wildlife biologists. So we tried to make sure that we had all of those voices there and, uh, and present as part of that paper so that they would know then that this wasn't just coming from Defenders of Wildlife. It was coming from this broader community of collaborators who were standing behind the research. It's pretty powerful. And moving forward, um, you know, I, again, I, I, I expect you'll meet resistance. I hope you don't. Um, how do you plan on sort of getting past that? Is there a, other than having sort of these other people working with you on the study in terms of then presenting this like if you you go into a community uh what tools are you employing to try and show the possibilities there's a lot of communities that are that are evaluating whether they want to be involved um whether they want are, are they tired of dealing with the conflicts i think that's a big part of the driver behind this is that eventually people get really tired of just all the arguing and all the energy and, and funding and all that that goes into just fighting and instead just transforming these conflicts into solutions that work for people. I think that becomes the more um, appealing part of it. And, and that um, for us is probably the most rewarding too, is that, you know, we're able to help communities and help ranchers and wildlife managers learn a different way, a new paradigm of how we can manage wildlife that um, is, is really beneficial for all sides. And, and that part, you know, there's no real arguments against that. I mean, how do you say, I just don't want to do this because I just want to kill wolves? I mean, I guess you could say that, but there you're going to lose public support, credibility, you know, uh, it just becomes somebody that just obstinately then doesn't want to change their methods. And ranchers of all people know that they have to stop, stay on top of, of new methods in order to compete, in order to make sure that their livestock are protected from disease and, and uh, oh, you know, the breeding tools that they have and stuff. So they, they have to be adaptive in that way. Um, and this is just taking advantage of that kind of, of uh business practice and, and common sense approach. I encourage you to check out the study for yourself, which can be found on this week's Defender Radio blog post at thefurbears.com. 
To learn more about Suzanne's work or the Defenders of Wildlife, visit them at defenders.org. That's it for this week, folks. Remember to subscribe to Defender Radio on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or YouTube so you're notified of new episodes. And follow me on Facebook at Defender Radio, Twitter at Defender Radio, and Instagram at Howie Michael so you're kept up to date on pending interviews, news, and of course, cute pictures of my dogs. Thanks again to Suzanne for joining us and all of you for checking out the episode. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.